Aurora for watching School Psych Podcast. My name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in Maryland. Uh, we're so excited to have Dr. Vander Hayden back here tonight. She's been on for a couple episodes, and we're just such huge fans. Um, I was talking with Eric and Rebecca earlier and just saying that we're, we're such nerdy uh, <laughs> fans and followers. We have to, like, keep keep ourselves under control so we don't make fools of ourselves so i'm just so excited um for her to be here again and, and chat with us but i'm going to pass it over to rebecca who's going to tell everybody um how to participate rebecca hello everybody welcome um if you are watching us live which i hope you are you can log right into your youtube account and comment right alongside the video those comments do live for the life of the video on YouTube. So if you'd like to send us a more private question or personal message, you can also message us on either of the two Facebook pages, School Psyched, Your School Psychologist, or the School Psych Podcast page, our dedicated podcast page on Facebook. And you can also tweet at Podcast Psych um, and use the hashtag Psyched Podcast. I'll be looking for notifications and looking for your questions and comments. I know we we always tend to get a, a nice group of, of fans like us when we have Dr. Vander Hayden on. So I'm looking forward to the conversation with you all out there too. And before I pass it over to Eric to introduce, to reintroduce our wonderful guest, I'd like to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor, Med Travelers. As a school psychologist, having a strong support system in your career is instrumental in finding the placements and opportunities that fit your goal. That is why we are proud to partner with Med Travelers, the industry leader for staffing school psychologists in districts nationwide, offering the advantage of W-2 employment status along with full health insurance coverage and 401k retirement options, Med Travelers is a true advocate for your career success. To learn more about Med Travelers and to discover the ways they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit medtravelers.com forward slash, forward slash school site. Thanks so much. And now I'll pass it off to Eric. Thank you, Rebecca. Hi, everyone. My name is Eric, and I am a school psychologist, also practicing in the state of Connecticut. And we are really excited to have Dr. Amanda Vander Hayden back with us again. And if you've heard her on some of our previous episodes, you uh, have likely heard about the article that I think is just amazing, which is why do school psychologists cling to ineffective practices? Let's do what works, one of her articles. And uh, one of the books she co-authored um, the RTI approach to uh, learning disabilities, which we'll hear about a second edition coming up. And um, so you've you've probably heard her talk about spring math and interventions and just the amazing work that she's doing. So um, you can check out the previous episodes and check out her spring math website. But I really just want to welcome her because we were having a great chat just before the show. And I want to continue that um, discussion. So welcome, Dr. Mander Hayden. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited. It feels so normal. <laughs> right. We're just hanging out, chatting. Um, so I am personally uh, super invested in the RTI Approach to Learning Disabilities book um, in, in terms of your first edition, which I have done book talks with colleagues with and um, have purchased copies and shared them with, with colleagues and um, just found it to be super valuable. So uh, I just wonder if we could start off talking about the update, uh, the second, um, what's happening with that? Yeah, thank you. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. I mean, you know, you, you worry that you put so much effort into something like that and then nobody reads it. <laughs> so that's like lovely. I'm so happy that people find it useful because that's what we wanted to do was really write a, a how-to practical research-based um, book that would help us all, you know, implement smarter and get, get better results. So um, interestingly that, you know, it's, it's dated now. That book I think came out in 2012, if memory serves. So that was, you know, that was some time ago. And the great thing is we've learned so much. I mean, we really do have new information that we did not have before. And a lot of that great work, you know, you can find um, like on the NCII site, and the ways they write about database individualization and, and intervention intensification and some of their rubrics around how teams can make smarter decisions, meaning more accurate decisions about how to help kids. So 
we knew we had to do an update because there were things we need, we felt like school psychologists needed to, to have access to. And so um, the lead author is Joe Kovaleski. I, I don't know if he'll write another book. This might be it for him because he has retired. Um, of course, I helped. Um, Tim Runge uh, was a co-author. And uh, Ed Shapiro was with us in spirit, of course, his intellectual fingerprints all over it. Uh, and then um, Perry Zerkel actually wrote a legal chapter for the book. So we were really committed to taking a fresh look at all of it. I mean, you know, the publisher is sort of like, oh, you know, your book was really successful. You only have to change 20% or whatever it is, and you can have it call it a new edition. And we said, but no, we really... So you'll laugh, but we had to actually cut content from the book. It was too dense on the back end. It took us about two years to write it. Um, and some of the new things that you'll find, uh, every chapter has been completely updated, of course, but uh, there's, a, there's a new chapter on um, screening, which I wrote. I loved writing that chapter. It's everything I think we all need to know that we've learned about academic screening, which has been such a prolific area of research in the last 15 years. Um, and then we did, we added uh, separate chapters that are really sort of how to kind of soup to nuts RTI for reading, um, a chapter for writing and a chapter for math. Of course, I did the math chapter. Tim did the writing chapter and um, Joe did the, the reading chapter. Um, so it should be very practical. I mean, it's got sample reports and really sort of how to information, but there's a lot of new content in the book. One of the, one of the things that we talked about very specifically was um, being recommending that systems use class-wide intervention and saying now this is really not a question mark anymore. It's unavoidable. You can't really do MTSS if you've got a high prevalence of risk. Your screening decision will be wrong. You have to institute classified intervention. And so we, that's embedded throughout the book. We form we formally place classified intervention uh, in the tri you know the famous triangle as tier 1.5. And, um, and then, of course, in our topical chapters, we really talk about how to do it. What does that look like in terms of um, reading, in terms of math, and in terms of writing? I know that when we had you previously, you, we touched upon it and then, because I was listening, and anytime, like sometimes I go back to, I hate listening to our own podcast because I can't, well, the three of us can't stand to hear ourselves. Um, but I went back to yours um, because you had said something and I wanted to share it with somebody. And then I found myself re-watching the whole thing because <laughs> it was awesome. And I, <laughs> anytime like I, I hear you speak, I just like, I get entranced. And so um, I know that you kind of went into it and then we went kind of off on a tangent or a question or something and we didn't really can you talk a little bit about what class right intervention is i know i did not learn about this in grad school and i've not been in a school that's been actively implementing which is blowing my mind i mean we were just talking about that before we went live like how can that be rachel because you know if you're a school psychologist and you are charged with finding who needs intervention I mean, this is the elephant in the room. You cannot do it if you have a lot of risk. There is no Superman of screening. There, it does not exist that will. You can take a ninety percent sensitive, ninety percent specific measure, and you can use it in a context where um, fifty percent of kids are in the risk range, and you will be wrong. You will ten percent of the time. You will say. These, this child is fine and doesn't need intervention, and that child will go on to fail the year-end test. So that's just a mathematical fact. So as a, as a school psychologist, when your job is to find is who needs intervention, you can't really operate without class-wide intervention. One, one of the things that um, I also think is underplayed, I think there's a sense that, well, if you don't use class-wide intervention, then it's just inefficient. You'll have too many children that you're recommending for individual intervention, but it's actually worse than that. So we have some data that shows that you'll be wrong in terms of not giving intervention to kids who really needed it about 50% of the time. Right. So class-wide intervention is simply, you know, you can even think of it as a filter. It is a second gate in a screening system anytime you're working in a system that has quite a bit of risk to it, which is, is unfortunately, that's very common in, in our world, right? 
Um, and it, it's, it's very brief. It's standard protocol. It's 15 minutes per day. It's ideally conducted in the classroom by the classroom teacher. You know, it's funny because I've been talking about this for 20 years and in doing this work for 20 years. And even my, my people will some, I'm talking about my spring math people, my team will sometimes get hung up about some piece of it. And I'm like, that is not the active ingredient. So I'll tell you, they sometimes get hung up about the peer tutoring piece. The peer tutoring is not the active ingredient. The peer tutoring is the format that enables you to deliver a high density of opportunities to respond or a high dosage of opportunities to respond in a very short interval of time because you've got children working in pairs. There's no magic in the pairs. I promise you, that's not the active ingredient. The active ingredient is you have selected an instructional level task. You are um, having children be able to practice and get feedback all at the same time. So they're all actively working. So one, we use the class-wide peer tutoring model that came from Charlie Greenwood. That's where I got sort of my first model of how to do uh, class-wide intervention. And we, riff, we riffed on it from there um, and we've studied it and we've tweaked it and we've um, sort of got it down to where it's pretty formulaic. And what we say is class-wide intervention when I say we, this is the world according to Amanda, but I say that class-wide intervention is always appropriate as a fluency building intervention. That's just how I situate it. It's not really ideal for an acquisition intervention. So if you think about it that way, and you're going to have a static sequence of, of foundational skills that build toward grade level success and if, if you begin with below grade level skills, which we always do in math, um, then it's appropriate to give fluency building. Most of the time, it should be. These are not new. These are not new skills that children are being taught. They should have been exposed to these in terms of their instruction. So you start with a below grade level skill, and then success on that skill should position them for success on the on the subsequent skills as you build toward grade level um, proficiencies. And the way we do it is, children get into pairs. You match your high performing kids with your low performing kids and your middle kids with each other. You can there's some there's all kinds of nuance to that that we could talk about, but that's roughly what it is. And one child is a worker and one child is a helper for three minutes. And the helper is following along and trying to catch any errors in the worker while the worker works these um, practice materials. It could be reading, could be reading passages. But uh, and let's, I'll just talk about math because I love to talk about math. <laughs> um, and then they switch roles and the other kid, the, the first worker becomes the helper and the second you know, kid becomes the worker. And the idea is it's high quality, productive practice with a high dosage of opportunities to respond, experienced by each kid. Um, usually your high performing kids going to go first because that's an effective model for your lower performing student. And the teacher needs to be kind of floating so that they can make sure that all of these little dyads are productive and busy the whole time, having that high dosage of opportunities to respond. And then they work uh, independently and they are trying to beat their score. So they're working against their own last best performance in their mind, which is very game like and kids love to do that. And then um, there's they trade papers and score. Um, that way, they children get immediate corrective feedback on their performance. That's an, another important active ingredient. And then they have a little error correction period and a group contingency for improved performance. So th those are the basic ingredients of class-wide intervention. And all that you're really controlling as school psychologists is, is that sequence of skills and practice materials and inserting the correct practice materials to the group when, you know, as the median hits mastery, everybody goes up to the next skill, whatever that might be. So that's like the rough kind of package of it. And, um, you know, of course, the research shows that you can get really dramatic effects on all kinds of outcomes, not just the, the proximal little baby scale outcomes, but the more distal outcomes like urine test scores. We see wonderful impacts to, you know, closing opportunity gaps. Uh, you know, that's always a big message for me when I talk to places. You'll never assess your way to a more equitable outcome that requires intervention. It's become my pet peeve. You know, I think George Batch was the first one who said it, and I know why he said it, and I agree with him when he said it. But many, many years ago, he said you can't intervene your way out of a tier one problem or out of a poor problem. But 
this was back in the day when nobody even talked about core. I mean, there was, this is like a million years ago. I think that statement is overused now because the other side of it is you can't not intervene your way out of a core problem. <laughs> you have to deliver intervention if you want to improve achievement. You're going to have to intensify instruction. So that's why classified intervention is so powerful. It's, it's a tier 1.5 because it is a very efficient way to get gains in a very short interval of time for many, many children. And it also happens to function as a wonderful screening gate. So you can be much more accurate about knowing who needs um, additional intervention. And one of the cool things too about classified intervention is if you think about it, what you're really doing is you're making the thinking observable with kids. So what you're really, when, when you've got a worker and a helper, that's usually going on inside your own brain when you're working by yourself. You're working, you're paying attention to what you do, you're thinking about what you did, you're self-correcting. So it's a beautiful behavioral practice model for thinking, for better thinking. Well, I just... As Rachel said, you know, I, I'm the old the old man of the bunch here. And, uh, you know, and, and so as she mentioned, not learning that in school, you know, I learned even less <laughs> way back when. Um, and mm -hmm. and it just sort of, you know, through reading research and articles and, and connecting with folks like you and Matt uh, Burns and yeah. uh, Ryan Farmer and, you know, all these amazing folks that we talked to, Ryan McGill. Um, yeah you know, have connected with research and, and practical application of that research to what we're doing. And um, it's incredible. And, and yeah, there's a disconnect, right? We have to bridge that gap with some of this great research and, and practical application. So um, you uh, mentioned screening as well. And you mentioned the screening chapter that you, you'd uh, written. I wonder if um, you wouldn't mind talking just a little bit about sort of uh, maybe the school psychologist's role in screening or p possible school psychologist roles in screening. And yeah, um, yeah, we love that. Right. I mean, that's what we do. We love that. I, I do, too. I, it's fun. And it is it's in our wheelhouse. But, you know, we, we really could be more disciplined about some of our screening practices. I think a lot of places are really very much in an overassessment situation. So. There's too much of the, you know, if it's a, there's a pie of effort that's available, right? Too much of that is dedicated to more assessment. And we've kind of made teachers um, vulnerable to that pitfall because it's, it's, a, it's like such an easy thing to do. We made it easy for them, right? And so to do more of that, but we have to think about being careful, I think, as school psychologists to really help teachers take the next interpretive action. So we don't want to just invite more data admiration. We don't want to um, create circumstances where you've got paralysis by analysis because there's so much information. Like even with, with learning loss, I, I was just thinking about this in the last couple of weeks. Um, stop looking for it. It's there. One, if you are a school psychologist and you are overzealously screening and saying, let's do a little more screening or let's do a different screening. Guess what? It's actually real. So you are wasting your time and you can presume it and move right to a risk reduction model and embed some follow up screening as part of that process. You'll be able to see your growth, but you'll be able to see reduced risk. And then as a result, your screening itself will be even even more accurate. So that's always a theme for me is paying attention to base rates and screening because those have been just completely ignored in our field. And in fact, most of the, you know, my problem with a lot of the vendors and the tools that are out there for, for us to use is that the trend has been to try to fix that problem that we know exists by making the scores more opaque, by creating sort of these composite scores, which we don't really know what went into it always, um, and then applying these norm reference cutoffs. So anybody below the 20th percentile is considered at risk. Well, you can be at the 30th percentile and be at risk. You know, you could potentially be at the 20th percentile and not be at risk. Um, because maybe everybody in your school is low performing because your instruction has been terrible. But if you come in with class-wide intervention and everybody gets, suddenly the whole picture changes. So I feel like, you know, paying attention to base rates means go learn about how to do class-wide intervention. I'm so glad you brought up Matt Burns, of course, one of my favorite people in the field too. And um, he, he really started the 
the Press Center for Literacy at University of Minnesota, and then he moved on to um, Missouri. But he very central to that work was the development of class-wide reading intervention. And there's there are some wonderful materials available through the Press Center at University of Minnesota. You have to Google the whole thing because otherwise it takes you to like the PR for <laughs> University of Minnesota because of press. But press is actually, you know, stands for something. I forget what. Um, but press the Press Center for Literacy at um, University of Minnesota is a great resource for class-wide reading intervention. Dr. Vanderhaden, I want to jump in because as you mentioned, um, learning loss due to the pandemic and opportunity gaps, I'm wondering, I think that, you know, while there, it, I agree, like it's so widespread. One thing that I'm observing um, is big discrepancies in, within one school community or district. Um, um, among children who somehow during school closures or, or even during distance learning had more access to, to support and, and just learning. And so they have less learning loss and, and then some, and some kids have more. And now all these kids are grouped by age, you know, in a grade. Mm -hmm. And so within a classroom, I see so many discrepant academic skills and also uh, I'd say learning behaviors. Oh yes, depending on the kinds of um, stressors and and maybe even trauma that kids have experienced, they have different levels of, of um, self regulation skills and learning behaviors. So, yeah. given all of that discrepancy within a classroom and what you said about matching kind of high performing and low performing, how does that all fit? Like how how would a teacher? I feel like a teacher might say. I can't do this because I can't mix the pairs because some kids are always going to feel bad and some kids are way ahead. And it's like I have, you know, three different classes within one and I don't know how to handle it. Well, that's not a new problem. It's really a great question. It's cool. it's like we need to have the right sort of anticipate that question and think it through. I mean, my answer is that heterogeneous class groupings produce the best outcomes for class-wide intervention. So you don't want homogenous groupings of kids where really everybody is low. So it's ideal to have some diversity of performance within a grouping so that you can match your higher performing students with your lower performing students. And then of course the sort of natural worry that parents might have or teachers or even school psychologists might have is, well then is that bad for the high performers? Is that a waste of their time? Is that holding them back? Not if you're efficient with what you're doing. It's 15 minutes a day. So it's 15 minutes of getting to be a leader or a helper. And oh, by the way, the data show that the higher performing kids grow. So that's, it's, that's a worry that I can understand it. I would ask the same question, but that, that has been soundly answered. You know, another great model for class-wide intervention is the PALS model from the Fuchs. And they, you know, had so much um, federal funding over the years to conduct these beautiful studies, like the kind of studies somebody like me dreams about, <laughs> because, you know, they really could fund and, and do these beautiful randomized control trials and, and ask these wonderful questions. And they had perfect control. And they did look at some of these things, like how do children feel? How does it feel to be the higher performing kid in a diet or the lower performing kid? And how do they feel when it's over? And what do they think about the intervention? And by and large, you know, it's 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 not there's it's a low risk endeavor for high performing kids. It's a low risk endeavor for low performing kids. Everybody is uh, growing. That's the idea. So the lower performing students feel like they had as much success as the higher performing students so long as they grew. Um, so I can understand that question, but I think actually that just, that just probably says that, uh, that teacher doesn't have any experience ever doing class-wide intervention. And maybe it would be that you would want to say, well, would you give it a try and see what happens? And then you would be able to show her or him that everybody grew because that is the pattern. That's always what we see. In fact, that pattern is so strong that when we don't see that pattern, we know that there's actually an implementation integrity problem. So Robin Cotting and I just finished a study and a couple of things I was thinking about while you're talking, unless you have another question. Like, okay. So 
we, we, two things. In one district in Arizona, we had, we're district wide, K6, and we had, um, so nine elementary schools implementing spring math. Um, and then during last year, 2021, we had two of the nine schools say, we just, it's too much. We can't do it this year. Okay. But now they're all back. So all nine are implementing again. Well, hello, that's like a great opportunity to look at well, what happened, okay? So in the seven schools that, that just persisted, it wasn't perfect. They had to modify. They were doing things virtually. Um, the seven schools that didn't pause had like three to 4% less proficient or proficiency loss on their fall screening this year compared to the two that paused had like, 17 to 20 something percent less proficiency this year on their fall screening. So they both all schools experienced some learning loss, but it was much more pronounced for the two schools that did not offer class wide intervention or, you know, some version of spring math virtually or whatever. We, when we had all kinds of tweaks to it of how we support, you know, what we made available to systems to try to facilitate any instruction outside of school. Um, and then the schools that did not, you know, that took a pause also now are growing more slowly. The schools that did not pause have, have had the exact same amount of growth as they had in the year before COVID ever arrived. So to me, that's learning loss recovery. They're, they're back on track. And the two schools that paused are further behind. So they will catch up. I mean, they're making gains and, and we'll, we'll watch them very closely. I mean, that's my message to the district administrators is let's really tend to these two schools and make sure they don't stick out like a sore thumb from the rest of the schools as we go forward. Um, so that was kind of like one thing. So kids for sure who had some type of support and access did fare better. So we know children who didn't have that. Like, again, stop looking for it. They had learning loss. It's real. Let's do something about that. Let's intensify their instruction in a meaningful way, in an efficient way, and just chip away at it. We do the follow-up screening as we go. Um, then the second thing I was thinking about is Robin and I did a study. We had planned to do a randomized control trial um, evaluating the instructional hierarchy. And what we wanted to do was provide, you know, randomly assigned children to get the indicated intervention or a contraindicated intervention according to the instructional hierarchy. And we wanted to monitor um, all kinds of things, but one of them was anxiety, math anxiety. And our hypothesis was that when you give children poor instruction, they have more anxiety. And I believe that is 100% true, right? So never in the history of, of instruction in my mind has this been more pertinent? Because I feel like the whole world is on edge. I feel like everybody's lost their um, familiar, familiar, fluent capacity to be civil, right? I mean, I have. I'm less civil sometimes for things, you know, because I just, I we had people over this weekend and I said to my husband, well, it's been a while. I probably will say something stupid <laughs> because I haven't done this in a while, you know? Um, and, and I did, I'm sure I did, but, um, but that's true for all of us and little kids are no exception. So now you, you've got a teacher who's on edge, you've got parents who are on edge and you have children who arrived to school who didn't, who fell behind. And if they do not connect with aligned instruction, instruction that is what they need, they're gonna experience anxiety. And as you said, their capacity to manage that is gonna potentially be worse than it used to be. So to me, one way you can help children, in addition to all the other things that are outside of, you know, I I mean, I, I appreciate them and I use them, but I won't pretend to be an expert about that area. I just let other experts talk about that. But one of the ways you can really help children emotionally is to help them connect with the instruction that they need when they need it. You will actually prevent anxiety. 
And so in the study that Robin and I did, ended up doing, we couldn't do the RCT because schools were closed. <laughs> we're like, oh, so we pivoted. I hate that word. <laughs> That's a pandemic word. But we pivoted and we did a uh, multiple baseline design across kids. And we did the, the whole thing in a virtual environment. And um, we manipulated whether or not children were in uh, indicated intervention or contraindicated intervention. And contraindicated interventions is not hard to imagine children actually getting in the real world. It happens all the time. And we measured children's self-reported anxiety. And pretty much it does support that uh, for some of the children, it was, anxiety was idiosyncratic, as you would expect. Some children had no anxiety. One child had um, anxiety at the very, very beginning, but only in baseline, and it just went down. So it was like exposure to us and the whole process, like it just went flat and stayed flat the rest of the time. But then we had two children of the four who they had anxiety when they were in the contraindicated condition and they did not they did not self-report anxiety when they were in the indicated intervention conditions isn't that interesting and of course we did see better learning we knew we would we saw better learning in the indicated intervention condition and the thing about teachers i think is just to empower them that there's a real science to how you figure out what kids need in terms of instruction. So just do that, right? I, I have some comments and then a question too. So I mean, through all this, I, I'm thinking and I get excited hearing about classified interventions and screening and all, and all this stuff um, and instructional hierarchy because you've gotten me way, way bought into that. And I use that all the time, just in my thinking and my consulting um, with teachers and intervention teams. But I also, it makes me sad because I think about my district and they're just, they're no, they're just not, they're, I don't want to say they're not competent enough, but they, they just don't have the structures in place to do any of this. Like, I just can't see this happening. I can barely get, you know, an intervention for a single kid, but like, it just, it, it would just be a huge shock. And I think that it's something that I kind of need to you know, keep working on. And I love that uh, you're, with your tool Spring Math that you give this consults to schools and classrooms and whatnot. And you look at the data and say, okay, this is what this means. And so you need to go forward and do this and you guide um, people through that. So that was all, you know, comments and whatnot. But my question um, then is as far as Spring Math, because you were talking a little bit before we went on air about kind of a smaller, like a homeschooling version of Spring Math or, or something along those lines. Can you talk about that too as well? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I just feel like children just need so much help, right? And, um, and what we do seems very simple and, and it's not that complicated. I don't think it's rocket science, but simple is not simplistic. And it can be, it, it could be a lot to ask of a parent. I mean, you've used some of our stuff, Rachel, with your children. I don't know if I could say that, I would just say that because there, you, there's a lot of papers to print and you have to sort of keep track of it and you have to do it with your child. So what, what happened is when COVID hit, all these people who I know and, and think the world of colleagues, friends said, can you help me with my kid? And I did lots of, you know, like at least a dozen people. Um, and all of these children, I'm proud to say when the parents did it, <laughs> had remarkable growth. I mean, I, I'll tell you a story. This is a true story. And, and I don't, she would not mind for me to share it. I won't say what her name is, but, um, she said, please share this story as much as you want. Um, so she's a colleague. She's an expert. She is an, uh, like an RTI coach in a state. She uh, has a child with autism. And she called up Spring Math and, they, and said, can I just buy it? I'll just pay the cost of a school so I can have it just to use with my child at home. And they told her no. And so then I ran into her doing some training or something over a virtual thing. And she said, well, they told me no. And I said, well, I'll give it to you. <laughs> it's not just not a problem. I'll help you do it. So we started with her little boy and um, he mastered, you know, we had the sample back, of course, below grade level. She knew that. Anyway, he had so much growth in two weeks that he beat his IEP goal for the year in math. And I have to tell you, she said, 
the first time, you know, I, I just, you know, yeah, you get into a groove. It's what we do. It's like, I, I know what's going to happen. It's not, if it were such a mystery, I, we couldn't say it's an effective approach to um, intervention to do this work. So, um, so I said, well, this is what we're going to do. And this is what he needs and he's going to grow. And this is what you'll see by winter. And off goes the email. Didn't think about it. And, and she emailed me back and she said, I have to tell you, I cried when I read your email. And I, and it was so profound to me because I think sometimes even like being an expert parent makes you even way more vulnerable because you feel like you should know all the answers and you should be able to, and this little boy's lucky to have this mama who really is an expert because he's, he's got challenges. And anyway, um, in two weeks, he, he mastered sums to six. He's moved into sums to 12. He will, he, it's within his reach at his pace of growth that he could get to grade level proficiency for his grade level. And she said to me, they were gonna send him to a life skills class. Um, and I'm, it's just like shocking to me, but it's because I think it's like, to your point, it's so hard to access consistent, even 15 minutes a day of one-on-one, -on -one, well-aligned intervention. And that's like the marching order to all of us. We all need to be thinking about, it's not the current state of affairs. It's, it's tough. You, that's not easily accessible. You can't get that. So how do we enable systems to provide that where it's really, really needed? How can we help bring that about? I mean, I've known great advocacy school psychs over my career who, you know, used to be there was no screening. There was no progress monitoring. There was none of this stuff. So we've come a long way. But yeah, that's that's the goal. That's what we need to be moving to. So the upshot is there's been, you know, lots of stories like that for me personally, which has been sunlight to my soul during this period of time. Um, it's been wonderful for me um, watching your little kids grow. It's been so fun. Um, but here's the thing. <laughs> I think it's a lot to ask of a regular parent. So what we happened upon just out of luck, I said to my people, well, this is how I've been doing it. Can't we just offer this? So we're going to try to, it is, it's, I think it's pretty much a done deal, um, offer sort of this concierge version where just like it's been how I've done it with all my colleagues. So I don't just put them in spring math and turn them loose. Um, but I say, okay, here's what, do this this week and then send me back this score. And then they send the score back to me and then I send them the new thing. And it'll be a little cleaner in the sense that, you know, you'll get like you've had no graphs, but I do. I give graphs to most people. It's just, you know, you were one of the first. So now to give you graphs is weird because there's all this historical data that you know, I, it's all in emails. So I don't even read this like crazy to find it. But um, but you get a little graph of your child's progress and more of a concierge touch with a real person who can help you. Right. Um Otherwise, we're having to give, you know, when we when we do stuff with teachers, it's it's more advanced than that. I mean, we're sometimes they're having to sift through reports and, you know, pull up what they want. And it might be 12 pages that they have to print and they can get you. I think it's a, a, not a school psychologist parent, but a, pa a parent who doesn't work as an educator could get lost in some of that. And that's what we want to be careful. We don't want to do anything that's not highly effective because it's just morally, it doesn't, it doesn't sit with me or my partners for people to pay for something that doesn't deliver results for their, for their child. So that's, I think that's the plan. And the great news is it's not, it won't be hard to get that off the ground because that's just having the right people who could, you know, be a weekly touch for somebody. And it doesn't take that much time. I mean, my personal caseload is full at the moment, <laughs> but it doesn't take that much time. And it's really fun because I get to see these, you know, these children gaining every single week. My kids love it. And, you know, they, they say, oh, you're going to send that off to Dr. Vanderhaven because, yeah, I do the score. I get the score. I send it to you. You say, OK, they need to do this next or or let's do this uh, a different way. And so it's it's just been fun. I mean, again, yeah, kids I, are so <laughs> funny. I mean, what I think it might have been yours who said, um, does she know all the math? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I laugh about that so much because I don't. I mean, let, all they have to do is get to about 11th grade and I can't help anymore. <laughs> you know?
Yeah, it's funny. I was even like writing an email to you at one point, and one of them looked over my shoulder, like, "Oh, you're talking to Dr. Fanderheid," and then tell her. <laughs> so you're like a celebrity in my house. <laughs> uh, well, it's just fun. It's so fun to watch the dots go up. You know, by the way, that's like that. That's a great way for us to get a shot in the arm too, to feel, you know, kind of like our own self care. I mean, I had to. I had to go to therapy to figure out self-care for me is not a manicure. You know, I mean, that was such an epiphany to me. I mean, this wonderful psychologist friend of mine said, you know, I don't think manicures are your thing. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you get them, but it's not really self-care. He said, I really think your work is your self-care. And I was like, wow, that's yes. But, but the work that you want to do, right? Because no matter what your job is, there's always there are parts of it we hate. That's true. That's always going to be true. But the part that I love is when you can when you can see the dots go up. Yeah, I mean, I think even that like staff morale. You think about like think of Red Baltimore was closing. You know, having extra professional development days converted to mental health days for teachers, and um, I I really have uh, mixed feelings about that qualms because. To be honest, if six half days are going to fix a morale problem, like I, it, that doesn't add up. If you've really got a morale problem, six half days is not going to fix a morale problem, in my opinion. And to do to it will potentially accelerate loss of learning or delay repaired learning for students, which I think is more demoralizing to teachers in the long run, because I think the way you can really help teachers feel inspired and feel better and encouraged is to see the growth that they get when they teach their children effectively. For sure. I think teachers, um, one of the um, teacher resilience factors is their sense of competence, right? Their feelings of self-efficacy in, in their profession. And we saw that really threatened by having to learn how to teach from a distance and having to learn a lot of new skills very quickly. So um, I think you're right. And I, it makes me wonder when schools wanna implement spring math and, and get the licenses, is there some, um, some implementation support for them as well? Oh, yes. I mean, you know, I was trained by Joe Witt. So I can't even think about intervention and not think about what that's really like in the real world. Which is, you know, like, so those early studies, I collected data. I was a little, I was not published on them. But I was actually, though, picking up the boxes to count the permanent products. I was very low on the totem pole. And, um, but, but the story, the data during the 1990s, the early original integrity studies that George Knoll and Joe Witt were running it down at LSU, they would train teachers to a fluency criterion to do an intervention, simple intervention, kind of like our, kind of my spring math intervention, something like that, very protocol scripted. Teacher would say, yeah, I think this is agreeable. I'll try this. And they would train them up, watch them do it 100% independently, two consecutive trials. Okay, you're trained. Give them everything to do it. And then we would go away and covertly monitor. And covertly monitor meant I would go pick up the boxes, <laughs> then take it out and count all the permanent products and record it and then put it all back in. Um, and what we found is that almost no teachers actually implemented the intervention. And then if you ask them, are you implementing, you know, how's it going? They would say, oh, it's fine. <laughs> it's going fine. You know, everything's great. Um, and then there was a phase called performance feedback where you had to say, and I, I didn't, I don't think I was a consultant on any of those studies. I was just a picking up the data person, but you would say, you know, gently, kindly, gee, I noticed you only implemented two of four steps yesterday. Is there a way that, you know, I could help you get better implementation today? And then they go, oh my gosh, you're watching me. Like you're actually, you know, and then they would do it. I mean, they would always do it. There was like, you know, one teacher in all those years that didn't, and they had to have a meeting with the principal, but after that, she did it. So, you know, it's it's fascinating when you when you ask that question, like, is there implementation support? If there's not implementation support, it's not happening, you know, and our assumption is it's not going to happen. So we wrap everything we can around trying to make it happen. And one of the things that was is really shocking to people who are not in education, I think, 
um, is that antecedent supports are not enough. So that's the training, the providing the materials, making sure they like it. I mean, that's what like business people will go, well, if you just gave them interventions they really like, they would do it. Like, oh, really? Because people don't follow diets or finish antibiotic prescriptions. And even if it makes them feel better, they don't finish. As soon as they feel better, they stop taking it. So yeah, it's, it's human nature. And so um, we definitely, uh, we, I, you know, I was really proud of this little number. We have better than 85% retention of, of users across years. Pretty darn good. But I think that's because we really, really, really tend implementation. So we require an onboarding training. It's not expensive. Lynn Lammers is our head of training. For, that's not her title, but she's so wonderful. Um, she used to be a math coach. She's done it all like in real schools and she knows spring math as well as I do. And we do that when we finish that, we have certain things that we need to have accomplished. So you're really set up and ready to go. And then we have all kinds of videos that are embedded in the site. So as you run into something new, up comes a little video and you don't have to watch it. You can click out of it. We, um, we have an, um, implementation metrics that we're tracking behind the scenes all the time. And then that is fed into a coach dashboard. So we're saying to a coach or principal, please go visit this classroom because there, we need we need some troubleshooting. There needs to be a conversation between adults about what's going on and maybe some in-class coaching. We um, have automated program evaluation. So at the end of the, you know, you could click on it anytime during the year and it will give you a dosage and effects report by teachers, by grades. So you can really see where you're saw. Everything is designed to really help you implement better, implement more effectively. And there's things that we say, well, this is a swing and a miss. Like there's all the time we go, well, why is this not being used more? You know? Like we've got this very extensive support portal and it's really interesting to see which things are used and which things are not used. And the, we're always studying that. We look, we're looking at that all of the time we, and we're working on, we have a, like a bigger dash that allows us to look at things by state, by region, by, you know, some kind of higher layers to, to pull out predictors of success because every metric from the child up aggregates. And it's really cool because we can connect things to growth. We can connect, we can look at our integrity metrics. We can look at things about, I'll just give you one example that um, when we look at our screening accuracy, which we do regularly and send new data in, to NCII every time they have a call, um, we discovered that because teachers are funny, they're just funny, you know, just human like the rest of us and they have their beliefs. And so they believe that if a if they enter a low performing child's score during class wide intervention, that that's going to hold the class back from moving forward. Well, it won't because we use a median. We do not use a mean to make the decision to move class forward. And even so, if one child is lagging, we're going to recommend that child for individual intervention. It's not going to hold your class back. So we, even though we tell teachers this, they don't believe it. So we discovered that teachers have a tendency to not enter a score for a kid who was just about to be recommended for individual intervention on the day that the median for the class hits the criterion, which is mastery, to advance to the next skill. So instead of, you know, going back and yelling at teachers, we just go through development and write a workaround. So any child who's missing data under those conditions uh, on two occasions, we put an individual intervention. <laughs> so, you know, because what we discovered is they have a higher probability of being a false negative error or a kid that we should have given intervention to that we didn't. So we just do the workaround. So I do, I say to my team all the time, misuse of our tool is feedback to us, right? Um, and, and that's fun. I mean, that is fun to watch that unfold and then figure out how how to tweak it to get a better result. And, and a lot of times it's not changing the teacher's mind. It's just working around. <laughs> that is that is sneaky and masterful. I love that. <laughs> it's a secret. Don't tell them we do that. 
<laughs> and that reminds me too. I want to say I I listened to you on the homework is stupid podcast, or maybe it was another one. I you're gonna feel like I'm stalking you because I listened to all your stuff. But <laughs> I think you talked about like a first at one point a first kind of version of spring math, and you kind of writing some of that in the computer like yourself and writing yeah, the program yeah. and doing that. Yeah. So I that just reminded me that that's awesome. That I mean, you obviously have the knowledge of math and research and education. And then you can go and I think you like taught yourself how to program to get this program up and going and that you're able to like think about, yeah, those sneaky little things that are going to make the difference. Uh, you guys would too, because we're all, we all have those analytical minds. That's how we think, you know, and the thing is, it's just, I could, I couldn't get a publisher to build it. And I knew it's what teachers needed. It's what I needed to be able to do my job to improve math achievement. And I knew there were so many places trying to figure out how to do that. And just along the way, because you evaluate what you do to see if it's working, we learn so much. Like there's a whole new way of thinking about math assessment that is really kind of groundbreaking. And I'm writing about it like crazy. Every time I get asked to write anything or I get a chance to write anything I, I, and I'm doing research on and publishing in this area. Um, and it's funny because we'll get these anonymous reviewers who will tell us and you know, well, this can't be right because Fuchs and Dino said in 1991 that you know there, you have to have a general outcome measure and this wouldn't be a general outcome measure. And we go, well, they said that in 1991, but that was a long time ago. I mean, we've learned so much and, and it turns out math is a different animal than reading. And math is necessarily contextualized in specific operations and, you know, not not thousands of operations, but but not there's no there's no oral reading fluency equivalent in mathematics. There never will be. However, there are systems of assessment using mastery measurement, which can be standardized, yield reliable and valid scores for decision making, but most importantly are sensitive and allow us to sensitively detect risk and sensitively monitor progress, which multiple skill measures in math do not do. I mean, we all tried to build them, big, big fail. Um, so we've learned some things, it's just exciting. And, and it, that's one that in, in math, we, we cannot really be using what we think are general outcome measures for driving important MTSS decisions or we'll be wrong. I mean, we there's a piece, we wrote a piece for the Communique um, and it's coming out uh, in the January issue. It's, it's done. It's um, in press. And we kind of explain most of that there and what, what that's about. But there's just a lot of, you know, in math, there's a lot of movement right now around, um, you know, alternative ways of thinking about what proficiency even is. And there's often, you know, pushback about timed assessment. And um, there turns out there's really a science, of course, to how children learn and how children, how children learn in math that runs counter to a lot of the popular narratives set forth by thought leaders. So, you know, there's, there's a group of researchers. Um, I, I'm one of the participants um, in a group called the Science of Math. And that's a good, there's a website. That's a great place to go and try to check out information and get sort of one pagers on things that you will run into, like, you know, timed assessment causes anxiety. Well, timed practice is a really important um, instructional tactic. So to make teachers afraid to use it because they think they're going to harm children is actually doing harm to children, just like pre queuing. It's the same thing. It's set forth as a better, more equitable way to work with children. And at the end of the day, it's a much less equitable way to work. You will actually promote in widened opportunity gaps. So, you know, and parents of means will go find tutors who will not use constructive constructivist methodology to improve math learning. So you will you will absolutely widen opportunity gaps if you deprive systems of um, evidence-based, science-based um, instruction, just like we saw in reading all these years. Uh, 
that, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm constantly thinking about the parallels. And before I knew much about math stuff, um, you know, I was all fired up about the reading. And then the more I learned about the math stuff, I just, <laughs> no, it's just as bad. <laughs> I know. Somewhere somebody is really obsessed about writing. <laughs> <laughs> And, I, and when you were talking about the class-wide interventions, too, and you mentioned pairing them up and trying to beat their, their best score and whatnot, um, and that immediately made me think to my district that is very anti-timed, very anti-like, you know, that type of thing. So to beat your best score, like, that would set them off right away, which is ridiculous that, you know, you can't take a, a timed one-minute test and, and try and <laughs> do better the next time. But um, yeah. You know, the, the research data do not show that timed performances um, stoke anxiety. This, you know, there, there are thought leaders who speculate that it does. It's speculative. Somehow this lands with people. I mean, it just, it lands with people. It's like learning styles. It lands with people. But the research data, you know, collected by all kinds, Dan Ansari, who is a wonderful scholar, fabulous scholar, wrote a piece with Dan Willingham responding to some a piece that Joe Bowler had put out about time assessment, you know, basically being deadly to children. And, and he, he just wrote from a science-based perspective that there's not only is there no data to support that position, there are data that suggests it's a really important tactic to be able to use both for measurement decision-making. I make that case all the time. He didn't really make that case. He made the case. It's a really important tactic for instruction to build proficiency or mastery. You have to have some timed dimensions to the work that you're doing. But we make a, I make a case all the time that, you know, if you're just using percent correct, you'll, make, you'll miss kids. You'll say that they've reached mastery and they have not. And that's what most teachers are floundering with because they're trying to teach fifth graders fifth grade content. And those children have not mastered fourth and third and second grade content. Yeah, they acquire it. They get accurate. And then the teacher moves on, you know, like Ken Johnson. I love his quote. And he says, teaching is not telling. And a lot of teachers, you know, still turn to page 182 in the math book tell the content and, and at the end of the day, they think they've delivered instruction and they move on. You know, that's well, effective instruction. I covered what I'm supposed to cover for the day. Well, that's not effective instruction. Effective instruction by definition is instruction that produces learning, right? So you have to measure and, you know, you have to be responsive to that. And, and teachers have to be really encouraged that it is okay to not simply march on, you know, Awesome. Uh, we had somebody who just uh, joined in and <laughs> she's glad that it's recorded. <laughs> so we're, we're glad. I feel like I'm going to go back and listen to her just to <laughs> um, get up. But they, we're, we're nearing the end of our time. But thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. And um, I just I learned so much and I get so excited. <laughs> So you gotta get some yeah. classified intervention going. No, I don't know. Eric and Rebecca, is that a thing in your districts? Or I've never seen that before, <laughs> honestly. No. Okay, uh, here's what I think. I think all of you should commit to run it in one class. I'll send you everything you need to do it. Just do it as a proof of concept for a teacher. That that's how that I would get great. I mean, that's how I, I would get it going. Because I have a district see it. They're going to ask for it. Yeah. It's that I'm in a district that is very like, you cannot use something that is not an approved material. Like it has to go through a review process. And it's if it's not on their list, like my teachers are scared to do things that are not on the approved list, unfortunately. But I will, I will search for a teacher and I would love to do that. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know, you can always make it, you can make a case because what you're recommending is, is an evidence-based practice. So it's easy to make a case that it's an evidence-based practice. Even if it's not on there, it's probably pretty easy to get on their approved list is the other side of it. But isn't that interesting that teachers are afraid? They've been made to be afraid to not use something because it's not on a list. I <laughs> And like you said, they, they push through the content. My, my husband is a math teacher and he needs to cover all these things. And he moves on to the next thing, knowing that half the kids in the class aren't there, but he needs to get through the thing. And that's like the mindset, unfortunately, that 
Yep. It, it is a scary thing for a teacher to not just march forward. I mean, I've seen that. I've seen te I've seen teachers feel very anxious. It's real. That's real. So to give them permission and to say, not only is it okay, you must do it. And here's why. You know, Matt and I, years ago in, in Vail, Arizona, we were working, um, collecting data on some class-wide intervention research in math. And um, we found that it took weeks and weeks and weeks to reach mastery on the foundation skills. But then when you encountered a more complex iteration of that skill, they mastered it much faster. So that's, we always try to use that to say to teachers, you, you're investing up front. It's going to pay dividends later. We see that like in Pennsylvania, we had a system that um, started with classified math intervention, spring math. And then in the next year, their first, the first graders who went to second grade, that second, that cohort of second graders was dramatically more proficient than the prior cohort of second graders. So it pays off for, you know, the future teachers. It's a cumulative impact. Same thing as like Joe Torgerson's old reading data. You can you really prevent falling further behind by delivering effective instruction. If you don't, they're going to encounter grade level instruction. It's going to be misaligned. They're going to feel anxious. They're not going to grow. The gap's going to get bigger. All right, a lot to chew on. Um, thank you so much. We're going to pass it over. I think we're, uh, Eric, you're going to read our sponsor message. And I just want to also mention that we will be having Dr. Cotting and Dr. Peltier on to talk about the Science Yay. of Math website and, and what you all are doing to kind of grow that. And I love all the infographics. I'm addicted to the infographics um, on February 6th. So that'll be a good one. Thank you. Yes. And thank you again, Amanda. It's always a pleasure. And I learned so much. So I, I actually, uh, you know, was taking uh, handwritten notes <laughs> and uh, you hear my pen falling to the floor as <laughs> I'm lifting up my notepad. But um, I'm, I'm going to go back and listen again because there are so many little gems of things that we as school psychs can pay attention to uh, for interventions, for screening, and uh, just really getting more fully engaged in that. Um, academic intervention process rather than just special ed testing and gatekeepers. So, um, so thank you. Um, before we go, again, just want to thank our sponsor, Med Travelers, for their continued support of school psychologists nationwide. As the leader in school staffing, the genuine care, benefits, and guidance that Med Travelers demonstrates with school psychologists is the mark of a true partner in career success. To learn more about Med Travelers and discover ways they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit medtravelers.com forward slash school psyched. And we will keep you posted as to our uh, upcoming guests that are in our next episode and um, hope everyone is enjoying the wonderful holiday season. Thank you all. <laughs>